So I'm not going to go through the handout systematically, um, numbered things, but I, I think it'll be obvious when I'm referring to what, because there's not a lot on it. So the first thing there, you may know some rather famous lines by Catullus, Odi et Amo, I love and I hate. Why do I do that, you perhaps ask? I don't know, but I feel it happening to me, and I'm tortured by it. You may perhaps not know these lines from a play by Terence, written about a hundred years earlier than that, in which a boy in love with a girl complains as follows, How intolerable! Now I realise that she's wicked and I'm miserable. I'm sick of her, but I'm on fire with love. I'm dying in full awareness and knowledge, alive and alert, and I don't know what to do. Exactly the same contradictory emotions, exactly the same inability to understand, and Terence got there a hundred years earlier. I wonder whether you know this. Our earliest surviving works of Latin literature are comedies. Twenty comedies by Plautus and six comedies by Terence. Plautus was writing a generation before Terence. We know of other works of Latin literature from that period, but the other works haven't survived. For us, Latin literature begins with the comedies of Plautus and Terence. And nearly all of these 26 comedies are about boys in love. They're not so much about girls, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid girls tend to be the objects of the boys' love, and it's the boys' feelings that are explored much more than the girls' feelings. But the standard storyline is that the boy has to overcome various obstacles to get his girl. It seems to be taken for granted that if the play ends happily for the boy, then the girl will be happy too. The obstacles can be of various kinds, uh, depending on the status of the girl. Sometimes the boy's father disapproves of the match perhaps because he has other plans in mind for his son's marriage, so those other plans have got to be thwarted. Sometimes the boy is in love with a slave girl whose owner hires her out as a prostitute. Uh, in that case, the boy's problem is how to get the money to pay for her hire, or else how to get her away from her owner without having to pay. Uh, the meat of most plays is trickery and deception, rather than the love itself. When the girl is not a slave, the boy has a different problem in getting access to her because respectable citizen girls normally led rather secluded lives, so there weren't that many opportunities to meet them at all. Boys didn't go out clubbing with, with girls of their own class. It just wasn't the done thing. And that's why so many of the plays concern affairs with prostitutes. That was the normal context for anything approaching a passionate love affair. People are sometimes surprised to learn that the Romans had comedies at all. It doesn't fit most people's idea of Latin literature that it might be fun. Uh, when in fact they were a popular form of entertainment, uh, although in the time of Plautus and Terence there was no permanent theatre at Rome. As far as we know, they erected temporary structures every time they put a play on. The plays were performed in the open air by an all-male cast, so men took the female roles, and almost certainly they wore masks. <coughs> if you can see my tie, that shows you some ancient copies of theatrical masks 
the masks of the boys and of the slave-owning pimp. Uh, all of this was true of the Greek theatre as well, uh, and in fact, Latin comedies are adaptations of Greek comedies that had been written about 100 years before Plautus's lifetime, and so about 150 years before Terence's. You probably do know that most Latin literature is, in one way or another, adapted from Greek literature, and Latin comedy is no exception. Indeed, its relationship to Greek literature is unusually close, because normally there is a specific Greek play that lies behind the Latin play. The Latin play advertises itself as being adapted from a Greek play. Uh, that doesn't help us much, because we haven't got the Greek plays in question, but clearly it was a selling point for a Latin play that it was based on a Greek one, and the plays kept their Greek setting, the characters had Greek names, the society depicted was Greek, sometimes even details of the law that are crucial for the plot are Greek. Uh, the playwrights weren't always consistent about it, particularly Plautus sometimes includes details that are actually Roman and don't belong to the Greek world at all, but still the overall framework is Greek and the play is advertised as being a version of a Greek play. One big question is, what did the Roman audience think about the Greek society that they saw on the stage? Was it something very bizarre and unfamiliar, or was it close enough to their own society for them to identify with quite a lot that went on in it? Uh, I'll come back to one aspect of that question at the end of my talk. Do you know Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors? Yeah. Good. Uh, well, that is quite closely modelled on a play by Plautus, the Menachmi, the Menachmus brothers, about two identical twin brothers who get mistaken for one another, and all sorts of confusions ensue because no one realises there are two of them. They don't even realise it themselves because they've been separated since early childhood. They find themselves quite independently in the same town, the town where one of them lives and the other just happens to be visiting. And, of course, everyone who meets the visiting brother takes him to be the one who lives there. Uh, the visitor finds himself accosted not only by a woman claiming to be his wife, but also by a different woman claiming to be his mistress. In this case, we've got the Latin play as well as the English play, so we can see what Shakespeare was up to. If only we could make similar comparisons between the plays of Plautus and Terence and their Greek models. One day, perhaps, we shall be able to, because new bits of Greek comedy keep getting discovered, normally in a very fragmentary state, and there was a lot of excitement in 1968 when they discovered nearly 100 lines of a Greek comedy that was clearly the model for one of Plautus's plays. So we do have a couple of scenes in Plautus, that we can compare with their Greek model, but essentially that's the best we can do. I should perhaps explain that a lot of Greek literature has been rediscovered in the last hundred years or so, above all from excavations in Egypt, where there was a thriving Greek community for many centuries, and where the climate is so dry that ancient texts have been preserved. Uh, also, if you unwrap an Egyptian mummy, you find that part of the wrapping is a sort of papier-mâché that quite often includes scraps of ancient texts. 
sometimes a comedy, because comedies were very popular. So who knows what will turn up next? And next time you're visiting a museum, you'll have to restrain yourself from tearing mummies apart, just in case they're wrapped in a lost comedy. But perhaps it's more important anyway to look forwards than backwards, never mind about the Greek models. Latin comedy was immensely influential and studied all over Europe, pretty well right through from antiquity to the 19th century. If you'd been at school 200 years ago, you'd all have read some comedies by Plautus and Terence. It wasn't at all surprising that Shakespeare turned to Plautus, because Plautus was central to the intellectual culture of his day. And his sort of comedy, with love, trickery and confusion of identity, has been central in the European comic tradition. The musical Blood Brothers is now running in its 20th year at the Phoenix Theatre in the Charing Cross Road in London. That's not a comedy at all, but it's a tragic version of the Comedy of Errors. It's about <coughs> twins who've been separated at birth and then cross one another's paths later in life. The essential story pattern goes back to the world of Greek and Roman comedy, and the fact that it's been running for nearly 20 years shows that it is a story pattern that never loses its appeal. Another highly successful musical, which is a comedy, dates back to the early 1960s, and that's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. It's got music by Stephen Sondheim, and it's a brilliant combination of several plots by Plautus. It's very, very faithful to Plautus, but uh, it's even cleverer than Plautus because it combines several of his plays into one. Uh, that's been made into a film, and it is regularly revived on the stage. Once again, the storyline remains entertaining, even after more than 2,000 years. Actually, Latin comedy offers much more than trickery and confusion of identity. Uh, the relationships, particularly between fathers and sons, are sometimes explored with some subtlety. Above all, in a play by Terence called The Brothers, which is one of the greatest works of Latin literature. Uh, there, a strict father is contrasted with a more easygoing father, and we're invited to ask what difference their contrasting approaches have actually made to the way the boys turn out. Related to that are questions of openness between parents and children. Fathers sometimes think they know what their sons are getting up to when, in fact, they haven't got much idea. They sometimes give them lectures on how to behave, which are completely wide of the mark. These are issues that we can all immediately identify with. Not only the storylines, but the issues provoked by them are every bit as relevant now as they were when the plays were written. So why, why, why are Plautus and Terence so little read at school nowadays? Uh, that is one of the great mysteries of contemporary life. One play by Plautus that has been particularly influential is Amphitrio, which is quite unlike all the others because it's on a theme from Greek mythology. That makes it less obviously relevant to our own concerns, but even so, we can still appreciate a lot of it on the human level. The god Jupiter has fallen in love with Alcumena, the wife of Amphitrio. Amphitrio has been away on a military campaign, and just as he's about to return, Jupiter appears disguised as Amphitrio, pretends he's just come back from the wars, and is, of course, welcomed with open arms by Alcumina, 
and spends the night with her. Next day, the real Amphitryo returns, and he's a bit put out that his wife doesn't greet him quite as enthusiastically as he'd expected. After all, she doesn't think this is his first homecoming. But he's then very considerably put out when she claims to have slept with him only the night before. The confusion is in fact doubled because Jupiter has come down to Earth together with his son Mercury, disguised as Amphitryo's slave Socia. When Socia meets his own double, he is thrown into some consternation. So there's a very similar confusion of identity to what we get in Menaikmi. And in fact, when Shakespeare adapted that play for his Comedy of Errors, he added the pair of identical <coughs> slaves, which he found in Amphitryo. We can see Shakespeare combining two plays of Plautus into one, uh, so that each brother in Shakespeare's play finds himself getting into arguments with a man he thinks is his own slave, when in fact he's nothing of the sort. Amphitryo has been very much imitated, when the French playwright Jean Giraudoux wrote a play called Amphitryon 38 in 1929, he named it in the belief that it was the 38th play on that theme. And there have been several more since, including a musical by Cole Porter called Out of This World, which is quite fun. An earlier French playwright, much influenced by Plautus and Terence, was Molière, one of his most famous plays, The Miser, is quite closely modelled on another play by Plautus, The Pot of Gold, which is about an old man called Euclio who's become obsessed with a treasure trove that he has found in his house. He's terrified that other people will get to hear of it, so he carries on pretending to be as poor as he was before, and he's deeply suspicious that everyone he meets has got to hear of his treasure and is plotting to steal it from him. While all this is going on, he fails to notice that his daughter is pregnant. And the comic highlight of the play is the scene in which the boy who has got her pregnant comes to Euclio to confess what he's done. He can't bring himself to be quite explicit about it, so Euclio <coughs> thinks he is confessing to having laid hands on his treasure. I've put this passage on your handout. The boy says, I admit I've done wrong and I beg you to forgive me. How did you dare to lay hands on what didn't belong to you? Well, I, I'm sorry. It's done and it can't be undone. I think it must have been the will of the gods. Otherwise, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened. Yes, and I think it must have been the will of the gods that I'm going to chain you up in my house and murder you. Don't say that. Then why did you lay your hands on what was mine without my permission? It was all because of drink and love. Well, uh, Euclio is not surprisingly outraged at that as an excuse for stealing his gold. Uh, and he says, you just should have kept your hands to yourself. Yes, but since I didn't do that, I'm absolutely ready to have and to hold. To have and to hold without my permission? I'm not asking to do it without your permission. But I think it's right for me to become the Lord and Master. In fact, I'm sure you'll soon come to see that that's right, Euclio. Uh, the boy is asking to be allowed to marry Euclio's daughter. Euclio thinks he's asking to keep the pot of gold that he's stolen. And he says, you've jolly well got to give back what you've stolen from me. 
uh, at which point it becomes clear that they are at cross-purposes and they gradually sort it all out. Well, that scene is followed very closely by Moliere in, in his play, and it is the high point of his play, as it is of Porteus's. One thing I can't easily convey to you is, is the exuberance of Plotus's language. It's full of alliteration, it's full of quite extravagant imagery. He likes to personify abstract concepts. So a character doesn't just say, stop him from committing a crime. He says, twist the neck of criminal behaviour. That's typical of, of Plotus's language. The plays are written in verse and quite a lot of the text would have been accompanied by music. It was a sort of musical, so Stephen Sondheim and Cole Porter were, were absolutely on the right lines. Unfortunately, we haven't got the music. Uh, that's rather an important element that we're missing, but there is plenty for us to enjoy in the words of the text. And above all, we can enjoy the presentation of larger-than-life characters. Euclio has become such an obsessive hoarder of everything that he even keeps his nail clippings after he's had his nails cut. And he absolutely hates having to pour away the water after a bath. That makes him sound like one of the Mr. Men. The slave-owning pimps are larger than life in their villainy. They're utterly unscrupulous. <coughs> they're very happy to break a contract with one client if they think they can get more money out of another client. Uh, another strong character is the boastful soldier, who is sometimes accompanied by a character called a parasite, or, or hanger-on, who earns his living by sucking up to people. Uh, Plautus even wrote a play called The Boastful Soldier, in which the soldier is called Pyrgopolynices, meaning mega-conqueror of fortresses, and the parasite is Artotrogus, bread-eater. In the opening scene, the soldier boasts to his parasite about all the victories that he's won, and the parasite reminds him that he claims to have killed 150 men in one country, 100 in another, 30 here, 60 there. Uh, and when the soldier asks him what that adds up to, he says, 7,000. Uh, the whole effect is to make the soldier look completely ridiculous, and Plautus is quite happy to go over the top to achieve his comic effects. Uh, that's yet another thing that was imitated by Shakespeare in his portrayal of Falstaff, particularly in Henry IV, Part I. Terence is, on the whole, rather more restrained, though he does have a similar range of characters in his plays. In his case, the humour normally lies much more in the misunderstandings and deceptions than in the presentation of extreme characters or, or the exuberance of the language. And it's Terence rather than Plautus who sets us thinking about human relationships. I, I love Terence's plays, but it's not so easy to speak about them on an occasion like this. So, so let me end with some remarks about yet another larger-than-life character, the scheming slave. Uh, we find him in both Plautus and Terence, but once again it is Plautus who has the most colourful examples. Ancient Greece and Rome were slave-owning societies, and the families portrayed in these plays are slave-owning families. Typically, one slave has been in charge of the boy since early childhood, a close relationship has developed between them, and the boy turns to this slave for help whenever he's in difficulty. So it's the slave in the household 
who has to think up the tricks to help the boy with his love life. The clever slave or cunning slave is one of the standard characters and he sometimes dominates the play from beginning to end. He's ingenious, he's boastful, he's constantly having to improvise to deal with unexpected difficulties and he sometimes seems to go out of his way to run risks and complicate his life by plotting to get more money for the boy in love than he really needs. This is quite reckless because he always has the threat of extreme punishment hanging over him. The boy's father is his master. He's perfectly entitled to whip him or put him in chains or even crucify him if he finds he's trying to trick him out of money. Uh, of course, it doesn't normally come to that because these are comedies, but it is an added element of excitement that the slave puts himself at considerable personal risk, although he himself has nothing to gain from it at all. It's all for the sake of the wretched boy who's too feeble to think up the tricks for himself. One element in the general celebrations at the end of the play is sometimes that the, the slave has to be forgiven by his master for the fact that he's tricked him out of money. But even this can be done in such a way that the slave remains on top. There's a play by Plautus called Pseudolus, the Deceiver, which is named after the scheming slave who tricks his master out of money. It ends spectacularly with a scene in which Pseudolus is drunk and forces his master to grovel and beg him to return half the money that he's been tricked out of. The master is then, of course, only too happy to say that he forgives Pseudolus and his son for what they've been up to. <coughs> That's pretty amazing as the ending of a play written for a Roman audience, most of whom were presumably men who owned slaves. What did they feel as they watched a character like themselves utterly degraded by his own slave? Did they really laugh at that? Well, one possibility is that they did not feel this was a character like themselves. They were perhaps smugly confident that no slave would ever get round them the way Pseudolus has got round his master. Uh, and, of course, in, in real life, the idea that a master would be reduced to grovelling before his drunken slave is pretty fantastic. Also, as I've mentioned, the play is set in Greece, so the audience can always say to themselves, that's the sort of thing that goes on there, but, of course, it would never happen here. Part of the entertainment value is that the play is set in a foreign country where strange things happen. It's like watching Neighbours. <laughs> Similarly, we can't be sure that boys in the time of Plautus spent much of their time having long-term affairs with prostitutes. That was probably more characteristic of life at Athens than at Rome. All the same, part of the appeal of these comedies is surely that they are rooted in aspects of family life and general behaviour that are the same everywhere at all times. And people who own slaves must surely be a little anxious about their control over them. So perhaps one function of these plays is to bring those anxieties out into the open, to let the audience have a good laugh about things that really worry them a bit, and perhaps to make their world seem even safer by suggesting that it's only in Greece that people actually need to worry about them, which isn't true. 
but it should reassure them. If you think about it, the cleverest people in these comedies are the slaves. If I were a slave owner, that might upset me. But the whole point is that Plautus doesn't want us to think about it, he just wants us to laugh. Uh, I think we all agree that laughter is much the most important thing in our lives, and that is why comedy is much the most important form of literature. So do go and read lots of it. Thank you very much. Thank you.